Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, so good morning. We, uh, God is doing some, 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 some amazing things in our church family, right? Like, I mean, we, we started this church with this soft launch of about 20 to 25 people like this, this last spring. And then we see that we've grown and we've doubled over the summer. Uh, God has been drawing all kinds of people. He's been changing lives. He's been forming us through the word and through the spirit, baptizing people. And now as we've moved into our new home here at RSM Intermediate, um, he's preparing us for this next season. He's preparing us for this next season of ministry. Uh, if you look around just to your left and to your right, you'll notice that there, there, there are empty seats in this room, right? Um, and man, like our, our prayer, our labors over the last several months has been that we want to see people who don't know Jesus uh, to be sitting in these seats, to come to know him, to come to love him, to come to worship him. And so because we're launching into this new and exciting season, just as we're, as we're, as we're getting together here in our, in our new home, preparing for a public launch in December with our Christmas series, uh, as we're launching into this new and exciting season, like we're taking a few weeks here, uh, we've been doing these last few weeks to sort of revisit and to unpack our mission statement together. Um, tell you guys a little story. Uh, the other day, uh, my family and I, um, we had this mission, right? We had this mission that we were supposed to go to the grocery store, like our local grocery store, and, and um, buy some food for the evening. We wanted to make like ultimate quesadillas, right? That's what we were going to do and go get ingredients for that uh, and bring it back home. Uh, and on our way out the door, uh, my lovely wife, Alyssa, she says, hey, um, why don't we go to Target, right? She's like, why don't we go to Target and get, you know, we can get our groceries there and we need to get pajamas for our son, uh, which, is, which is true because he's like a year old and apparently like baby boys, when you feed him, like they get bigger, right? And so he's like constantly growing out of his pajamas. Uh, and so we went to Target to go get pajamas and we walk in and I'm heading straight to the kids' clothing section and Alyssa banks a right. I'm like, where are you going? And she's like, oh, I just want to check out like this new section they've got going on. I'm like, oh, all right, I guess we're going to go to this new section. Uh, half an hour later, we're still at this new section, and I realize the real reason we went to Target is because Chip and Joanna Gaines from Fixer Upper have this new line that they just released at Target this week, right? And so we're here, and we're just at this store section for like another half hour, and I realized at this moment, like, man, we've got two competing missions going on, right? We've got two competing missions, and um, I thought we were there for one reason, but Alyssa had this idea that we were there for really another reason, uh, and I got permission to share that story, by the way. Um, <laughs> But the point is, look, there's nothing wrong with having some sort of secondary mission, but you can never replace the primary mission that you're on, right? Like, it's easy to get distracted from your mission if you're not rehearsing it, if you're not revisiting it and remembering it. 
And that's what we're doing here, like over these last few weeks and over these next couple weeks, is we're revisiting our mission. Like what we're doing is we're answering questions like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Why are we planting this church? What is this whole thing all about? And so we're going over our mission, our mission statement as a church, which is a mission that's been shaped by the scriptures because we do care a lot about the Bible. And so our mission comes from the scriptures and the way that we articulate our mission in in our context is we say uh, that our mission is that we exist to multiply disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our mission, is to multiply disciples. Multiply disciples who live for God's glory and the good of our neighbors, and we do that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, so let's get to work. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're, we're going to recalibrate our hearts on what's important here. We're going to unpack what it means to be a church that's centered on the gospel. A church that's centered on the good news of Jesus Christ, that's fueled by it. You see, look, it, like it doesn't matter how, how beautiful your, your house looks if your foundation is broken, Right? It doesn't matter how nice and put together your house looks if your foundation is broken and if it's off. Like if your foundation is broken, then your walls start to crack, your ceiling starts to crack, starts to cave in. And so that's why we need to anchor ourselves on what is solid. We need to anchor ourselves on a foundation, a foundation that's solid, that is true, that is right and that is lasting. And that foundation for us as a church of Jesus is the gospel of Jesus. And so here in Romans 1, we find out what it means to be a church like that, what it means to be a church that is centered on the gospel. Theologians and Bible scholars believe that verse 16 and 17 are Paul's way of summarizing the gospel, sort of putting it in a nutshell. And so we're going to walk through it and look at four things. We're going to look at the nature of the gospel. That's the first thing. Secondly, the message of the gospel Third, the power of the gospel. And last, the centrality of the gospel. So we're going to look at the nature of the gospel, the message of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and then the centrality of the gospel. Let's look at that first one, the nature of the gospel. Read verse 15 through 17 with me. Paul says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteousness or the righteous shall live by faith. Now let's look at that first phrase where Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. So that begs the question, the, the, the question like, what is the nature of the gospel? What is the nature of the gospel? We throw that word around a lot, right? Gospel. What does it mean? The word gospel shows up almost a hundred times in the New Testament. It's this Greek word, euangelion, which stands for good news. Good news. And so that's the nature of the gospel is that it's actually news. It's good news. It's words that are meant to be declared. And so what do you do with the gospel? You proclaim it. It's good news. You celebrate it. It's good news. Paul says, I am eager 
to preach the gospel to you. Now, in the full sense of that Greek word, euangelion, the gospel, means not just good news, but heralded good news. It's the kind of news that you declare, that you herald. You see, back in Jesus' day, you had these heralds whose primary job was to like, run into town on horseback into the town square, and once they would get to the center of the public square, they would, they would, you know, they would unmount, and they would shout whatever was the newsworthy news for, for that day. They would just shout out whatever news people needed to hear. They didn't have like news outlets back then or podcasts or Twitter or websites or anything like that. They had these heralds, these town criers that would come into town and say, here's what you need to know. And so if there was like some military general who achieved some like intense victory back then, you know how they would spread that news? They would send the herald. They would send the town crier who would ride into town and scream, we won! Victory! We won victory! And then he'd go on to the next town and he'd say the same thing. We won victory! We won the battle! He'd just yell the same thing from town to town to town. And everyone gathered out in the public square. They would hear this good news. And they would go back to their streets, go back to their homes with joy. Hey, did you hear the news? Right? And that sense of that word for herald, for that sense of that word for good news is why the New Testament writers chose this word, euangelion, gospel, good news, preached news, heralded news, because it was that kind of news. It was that kind of news. That's the nature of the gospel. You see, this is what separates Christianity from other world religions. You see, other world religions will give you a list of things that you need to do a list of things that you need to do in order to sort of make it in. And some people treat Christianity that way. But when you press into the scriptures, you see that that's not the case at all. It's good news. It's not a list of things to do in order to make it in. Christianity gives you good news that you're invited in because Jesus has done it for you. That's the gospel. That's worth proclaiming. That's worth celebrating. You see, a lot of people, they, they miss the purpose of this book. A lot of people miss the purpose of this book. They say, you know, well, this book, it's, it's primarily an instruction manual. Right? That's what this book is. It's primarily an instruction manual. Uh, like, does it have instruction? Does the Bible have instruction? Yes, absolutely it does. But it's not primarily about instruction. It's not primarily about what do we need to do. It's primarily, it's not primarily even about therapy, like how we need to feel. But it's primarily about the history of salvation. News of something that happened, of something Jesus has done. I want to show you something in the beginning of this chapter. In, in Romans 1, verse 1, 1 and 2 actually, it says, Paul's addressing this letter, and he says, Look, it's me, Paul, writing you. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That, that was his job. In verse 2, he says, which God promised beforehand. So God promised this gospel beforehand. Where? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So what does that verse tell us? 
That tells us that this gospel was actually promised to us in advance. This gospel was promised to the church Paul was writing to in advance through the Old Testament writings. You see, what that tells us is that all the scriptures point to the good news of Jesus. He's the point. You see, some of us think like, oh, like the, the New Testament, that's when, that's when, you know, when Jesus came, it's all about God's mercy and, and grace, right? And the Old Testament, that's when God was like a little grumpy, right? Like that's, that's, that's different. That's not about Jesus. That's not about love, mercy, and grace. But what Paul points out to us and what Jesus points out elsewhere is that every word Every character, every dot in the Old Testament scriptures point towards, testify to Jesus. One way that you could look at it is the Old Testament is promises made about the Redeemer that would come and fix our broken world, and that the New Testament is the story of how those promises were fulfilled. You see, Jesus is the point, Old Testament and New Testament. The Bible is not primarily about you, right? Like the Bible is not about you. It's for you. It's for you for sure, but it's not about you. It's about Jesus. You see, the Bible is not a collection of unrelated stories. It's not about Adam and Eve in one place, David and Goliath in another place. It's not about baby Jesus over here and King Jesus over there, right? It's one overarching story. One narrative, one meta-narrative of the God who is, the God who made it all, the God who we've sinned against, who we run from, and the God who came for us on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. And so look, here at, here at King's Cross, like we want to be a church that is centered on this good news. When the Bible is taught each week, we're going to proclaim Jesus. It doesn't matter if we're in Genesis or John or Revelation. We're going to proclaim Jesus. You can get good advice in a lot of places, but there's only one place to get this kind of good news, cosmic good news. And that's in the nature, that's the nature of the gospel, that it is good news. All right, so that's the nature of the gospel. Secondly, our next point, the message of the gospel what is the message of the gospel? Look at verse 17 with me where it says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now what does that mean? He says in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now the righteousness of God refers to, to two things. All right? The righteousness of God refers to two different things. It refers to like God's attribute. He is a righteous God. But it also refers to his saving activity. The way that he righteously saves us. Okay? So the righteousness of God is, his, is an attribute of him. It's part of his nature, but it's also part of his work. His saving activity towards us. And those two things are sort of tied together really nicely in the gospel story. You see, the gospel story starts with the first chapter, the, if you want to look at it in four different chapters, the first chapter of the gospel story outlined in the scriptures is that of creation, right? God is the righteous creator. God is the righteous creator. All things 
are made by him. All things come from him. We came from God, and he is the perfect standard of all that is good, all that is true, all that is beautiful. You see, God doesn't just meet the standard. He is the standard. Genesis 1 says that when God made the heavens and the earth, that it was good, right? It was good. And so you've probably noticed, if you looked around and you're paying attention, that something's gone wrong, right? Things don't seem good anymore. You've noticed that something has gone wrong, and that thing is, is sin. Sin has entered the world, and that's a, the second chapter of the gospel story, is the fall, when our righteousness is stained. You see, at a cosmic level, sin introduced death, sickness, division, wars, famine, corruption, but at a personal level, sin stains our righteousness. It alienates us from God because he demands perfect righteousness in his presence. Right? That's his very nature. He's a holy God. He's a fair God. He's a righteous God. And his very nature demands perfect righteousness in his presence. Now, can we be honest about something? Like, some of us, we don't like that, right? Like, we don't like to hear that. It makes, kind of makes God sound a little uptight, right? Like, this is a safe place to be honest, right? Like, sometimes when we, when we hear statements like that, we're like, man, it seems like God's a, a, maybe a little uptight. Like, some of us hear a statement like that and say, well, 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 God should maybe lighten up, right? Maybe he should make it a little easier, but when we say things like that, what we're doing is we're, we're actually verbalizing like a smaller view of God because we're expecting him, who's other than us, to act like us. Remember, he doesn't just set some standard apart from him. Like, he is the standard. And so if we say that God should lower the standard, then he has to be less of that standard himself. He has to be less of God. Picture it like this. Um, you guys have seen the movie Frozen, right? So uh, we've got a three-year-old daughter, so we've seen Frozen, you know, like once or 29 times. Um, and in the movie Frozen, there's this character named Olaf, right? He's probably the most lovable character in the whole movie. And, and Olaf is this snowman who just magically comes to life. And there's this sort of comical scene where where Olaf is dreaming out loud, right? He's dreaming out loud about summer and sun and all things hot, right? He's dreaming about these things, and he's verbalizing this, and, and, and he's never experienced heat before, obviously, right? He's a snowman. He was created in the thick of winter. That's all he's ever known, but he's like, man, I would love to know what summer would be like. I would love to know what hot feels like. And... He just imagines what life under the summer sun would be like. And he's like, man, that, that must be a lot of fun. And no one has the heart to tell him that snowman can't survive the summer, right? This is a really difficult conversation that no one was willing to have. Now imagine, though, if Olaf, the snowman, found out someone told him that snowman couldn't survive summer, and he just like went ballistic, right? Just imagine that Olaf goes, he just gets livid, and he's like, Man, why does it have to be that way, right? The sun shouldn't be so bright. It shouldn't be so hot. Summer shouldn't be so hot. Why does it have to be that way? But if it wasn't that way, then summer wouldn't be summer, right? 
If the sun wasn't so bright and shiny, then it wouldn't be the sun. You see, it's, it's brightness. It's its lightness. It's its heat. It's hotness. That's what makes the sun the sun. That's what makes it so brilliant. You see, and if, and if, and if Olaf did respond that way, like what, what he would need to understand is that you know, in order for him to enjoy the summer, like some type of provision would need to be made for him. You see, it's not just true that sinful people can't live before a holy God, but it's also good. It's also just and fair. It's also beautiful. So that's the second chapter in the gospel stories that our our righteousness is stained, it's lost in the fall. But then there's that third chapter, redemption. And that's that where we see that because of his love, God restores our righteousness in Jesus. God takes initiative in Jesus. You see, Jesus' name, his name, Jesus, literally means deliverer. He delivers us. He delivers us. He redeems us. See, Jesus is God who came down in the flesh to walk the earth, to go to the cross where he would hang in our place for our sins. And so when we say, Jesus died for your sins, like that's no small claim. That is not a flippant statement to say Jesus died for your sins. The scriptures say that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This was done for you. This was done for you. Not because you're so lovable, but in spite of the fact of that you're not that lovable, right? Like, even when we were stained by sin, Christ died for sinners. And on the cross, something happened that theologians have called the great exchange. The great exchange where all your sin went to Jesus, all your sins of commission, the bad things that you've done, and all your sins of omission, the good things that you failed to do, all of that goes on to Jesus, right? And he, he takes the penalty. He absorbs it. That's why we can say that the gospel reveals that God is righteous. That's what Paul says, right? That's, we can say that the gospel reveals that God is righteous because look, God didn't just sweep our sins under the rug like some, like some cosmic janitor, right? He dealt with it himself. He dealt with it. He didn't just cancel our sin. He liquidated it. He absorbed the penalty himself. He picks up the tab of justice. You know why that's good news? You do know why that's good news? Do you know why that should give us assurance? Like you don't ever have to wonder if your sin will come back to haunt you. If you're in Christ, you don't have to ever worry about if your sin will come back to haunt you in some cosmic way, like as, as though it were sweeped under the rug. You don't have to worry if it'll ever come out from under the rug. It's been dealt with. It's been paid for. It's been satisfied. Jesus' last words were, it is what? Finished. It is finished. He did it. Look, You and I, we don't contribute anything to our salvation other than our need. 
We don't contribute anything to our redemption other than our need, other than faith. That's why Paul says here in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's through faith all the way. You don't have to contribute anything. And then he says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, he's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, a small Old Testament book. Shows us again that, that this has been the plan from old to new, from Old Testament to New Testament, the good news of Jesus. There's one more chapter in the gospel story, and that's restoration. Restoration, you see, it doesn't just stop at redemption. It doesn't just stop in the fact that we're saved from something, but his righteousness is also given to you. You see, that's the second part of the great exchange. Your sin goes on Jesus. His righteousness is given to you. That's the great exchange. We're not just saved from sin. We're actually saved to a new life. A new life of righteousness where his work works itself out in, in us. And here's what that means. It means that, that in Jesus... You're not just made clean and forgiven, but you're also made new. You're, you're also loved and accepted and celebrated. You're also adopted into a new family, the church, with brothers and sisters and a father who's holy and perfect. You have a new future with him. And you're given gifts and a purpose in the church and you're sent into the world as ambassadors to bring hope to a broken world that needs it. You see, that is meant when it says, for in the gospel, the righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. It's the righteousness of God throughout the gospel story. He's the righteous creator who made everything. We lost our righteousness in the fall, but he saves us from the penalty and redemption and restores it to us and to creation by restoring it. That's the day that we long for. And so we've looked at the nature of the gospel, the message of the gospel. Now let's look at the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel, we see it in verse 16 where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, what? The power of God. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So look, Paul says that the gospel is the power of of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I want you to notice something. He's not saying that the gospel brings us the power of God. He's not saying that the gospel is the means to the power of God, the road that gets us to the power of God. What does it say? It says it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. God. Now, here's, here's what that means. That means when I hear the gospel, when I'm hearing the gospel, because again, it's news to be proclaimed, right? It's words. It's a declaration. When I hear the gospel and when I believe in what it says, when I hear it and when I grasp it, when I consider the words that there should, then there should be of the gospel, then there should be some point, there should be some point that it becomes more than just information in my head, but actually becomes passion in my heart. It becomes power in my life. 
You see, the way that you know you're beginning to understand the gospel, like truly understand the good news, is that it becomes more than just information for you, but it actually begins to change you. You begin to, you actually begin to see, to, to, to feel it, to sense its power at work in your life. Not just at the point of your conversion, but in the everyday stuff of life. John Piper says, the gospel is the only message in the world that powerfully can bring a person not just to conversion, but also to everlasting safety and joy in the presence of a holy and glorious God. In other words, when you believe in the life, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then God in His grace helps you, helps you learn how to live in light of that reality. And then in light of the reality of His goodness, His love, His mercy and grace. You see, if you, if you believe in the good news of Jesus, then, then, then look, that means that God has reached out to you. He's reached out to you through Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the grave in triumphant victory over Satan's sin and death, then that victory is yours too. That good news is yours too. And man, that'll transform every part of your life. That's what growing in the gospel is. It's learning to, it's learning to apply and reapply the reality of this good news to everyday situations and everyday circumstances in our lives. And here's what that means for us as a church. This is our fourth point and final point. The centrality of the gospel. This means that for us as a church that we will always be centered on this good news. We will always be tethered to the gospel, the good news. We'll never graduate from it. We'll never move on from it. I, I need you to see something in verse 7 and, and 15. Look at, look at verse 7 with me, and then also verse 15, where it says, Paul's, Paul's writing, and he says, to all those, he's addressing his, his audience, and he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And so he's saying, look, look, I'm writing to you in Rome, all you people in Rome, the church there, who are loved by God and called to be saints. All a saint is is somebody who's been, uh, who, who has union with Christ, who's following Jesus, right? Who's been changed by Jesus. And so, and so Paul's writing to the church there of believers. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to a church. And then he says in verse 15, and he says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, I want you to notice something. Paul's writing, he's writing to Christians, and he wants to preach the gospel to them. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that the gospel is for all of life. The gospel is for all the Christian life. You see, we tend to think of the gospel as the point of conversion, right? We tend to think of the gospel as this, this, this door that gets you into the church, into the kingdom. But see, this passage tells us, like, no, it's the very foundation. It's the very foundation. Tim Keller is fond of saying, the gospel is not just the ABCs 
but the A through Z of the Christian life. See, it's not just the beginning. It's not just the introduction. It's not just the ABCs, but the A through Z of the Christian life. And look, that's why in everything that we do here at King's Cross, in our ministries, in our community, in our outreach, in our programs, in our, in our development, like we will put everything under the spotlight of the gospel. We'll ask the question, how does this thing help us grow in the gospel? How does this help us make much of the God of the gospel? How does this help us get the gospel out into the world, bring hope into the world? You see, in the last book of the Bible, Jesus gives, he actually gives a warning to a church that has gotten off mission, that has drifted from the gospel being at a place of, of first importance. And they got captivated by issues that were of secondary importance. I want you to read it with me. It's in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Jesus is, is writing a letter here through John to a church. And he says to this church, I know your works. Good so far, right? <laughs> I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. Still good. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So their doctrine's right on, their, 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 their social works and involvement is right on. And he says in verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So they're, they're faithful in these things. But then look at verse 4. He says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've abandoned the primary thing you're supposed to be about. You're doing all these great things, but you've abandoned your love for me, your enjoyment of me, your celebration of the gospel. You see, by the grace of God, that will never be true of our church family. By the grace of God, that will never be true of our church community. See, we don't want to be like a kind of church that ends up being so driven by, by numbers or so driven by a desire to be culturally relevant. I'm not saying those are bad things. Those can be good things, right? Or, or even so driven by a desire to be culturally distinct, we don't want to be driven by doctrine so much that we actually place our historic heritage above our, our Christ. We don't want to be so driven by social good that our good works eclipse the glory of God. You see, these are all important things, and these can all be good things. We want to see our numbers increase. We want to see disciples get made. We want to communicate in a way that is relevant, that, that people can understand. We also want to be culturally distinct. We don't want to be sellouts, right? We want to care about doctrine. We want to care about social good. All of these are good and important things, but they're not the main thing. They're not the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. The gospel is the main thing. It's the main message. Maybe this morning you don't believe in this gospel. 
You've heard us talk about it. Maybe you've visited a few times and you don't believe in this gospel. And, and, it, and if that's you, like we're, we're, we're glad that you came. And we hope you know that you're always welcome here. And you're free to ask hard questions, honest questions, because we believe that there are real and satisfying answers in Jesus. We don't, we don't claim to solve every problem or to satisfy every longing. We only claim to know and follow the one who does. Maybe you're, you already know the gospel. You're already um, passionate about it, and it stirs you. And we celebrate that. Share that. Share that with others. Or maybe you believe in the gospel, but you feel like you just haven't truly experienced its, its power, right? And I just want to say, like, man, we're, we're glad that you're honest to admit that. Jesus welcomes those who know, uh, who, who, who thinks that, who don't know all the answers to, to grow in relationship with him and to, as they follow him. And that's why, like, each week, like, we're, we're eager to preach the gospel, to grow in the gospel together. And for all of us, for all of us here at King's Cross, we need to press into this. We need to be centered on this. We need to remember and rehearse the good news of the gospel. That Jesus is our greatest hope and he is our loudest boast. He is our deepest longing and our greatest joy. The gospel is the banner that we we wave. It's the message that we proclaim and it's the song that we sing. And that will never change by the grace of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.